Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everybody out here this morning. All right, so Hebrews chapter 9. Last time we had finished with uh, chapter 8, and you remember that the, the final verse or thought in Hebrews chapter 8 was that the Old Covenant had been obsolete, made obsolete, old and ready to vanish away. So I'm going to start here in Hebrews 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, due to his audience here, he's really just saying that they're all Hebrews. They all know and understand what he's talking about and the things he's speaking of. He's not going to go into great detail on these things as they all know that. So sometimes that sounds a little confusing. So just want to make sure we understand that. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Pardon me. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now for some translations that's going to say where there is a will, because it's 
speaking of like a will and testament, and of course, your will and testament isn't in force until after you're passed away, right? All right. So, um, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it is necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ has offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So if we look at this, and uh, notice the, well, we might want to notice the points to ponder here, the symbolism of the earthly tabernacle and its divine services, and the superiority of the heavenly high priest and his sacrifice. Um, but I wanted to move on into the questions here, as in the number one, they really kind of mentioned this already, but what are the main points of this chapter? Well, right, he's comparing the earthly sanctuary and covenant to the heavenly sanctuary. He's talking about the earthly sanctuary and its service in the first 10 verses. And then in the next verses, uh, like 11 through 28, talking about the heavenly sanctuary and its sacrifice and making that comparison and distinction on how the new, what we have now, which is the heavenly, of course, sanctuary and its sacrifice is better. Does anybody have anything on that? Yeah, man. I mean, they're asking for points. I wasn't sure exactly how to answer that. It's the first section, like you said, is about the physical tabernacle. But then maybe there's points in that second section that Christ is better. And the points would be his blood is better than, the, yeah. than those old sacrifices. His sacrifice is better. He's a better mediator. The covenant or the testament or the will is better. Yep. Um, and, the, and then the, the temple tabernacle is better. Jesus has gone into the heavenly places which are represented by the tabernacle, but he's in the better heavenly realm. Right. Christ, uh, Christ has gone into the heavenly sanctuary, the better sanctuary, with his blood, which is the better blood, and uh, the better sacrifice that he made for us. 
Um, so all things, all of those things are better because it's the heavenly, the heavenly things. And I don't remember all of that to summarize all of that, but yeah, all those are good points. All right, so uh, question number two. Describe the two parts of the earthly tabernacle and what they contained. We know the, the earthly tabernacle, there were, there's the, the main, I'll, I'll call it the main room or area, right? Um, the holy place. And what did it have in it? It had, we know it had certain things, right? Right, it had the lampstand, the table of the showbread, and the altar of incense. Right. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 7. I, I did not plan on going through that here, but uh, we've looked at that before. And then the second part, what did they call that? Uh, the most holy place, the holiest of all, some things say, and then some things say the holy of holies. So it depends on what you're looking at. But nonetheless, and it contained like the Ark of the Covenant and all the items that were in the Ark of the Covenant, which were, let's see, if we can remember, it was the manna, right? And then it was Aaron's rod that budded. Oh, and of course, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the uh, covenant. So, let's see. Um, and then, it does make mention of the mercy seat. I always consider that the top of the Ark of the Covenant, so I don't really think of that as a separate item. But, but they did mention that. So, Does anybody have anything on that? Yeah, Matt? Uh, I know my mom just mentioned about the, the altar of incense being in the holy think that is how it's described in the Old Testament. But here in our text in Hebrews it says it describes that as being in this most holy place. And it, what I understand that someone said that's a contradiction or something. My understanding is that that uh, altar of incense was right up against the curtain of the most holy place and then the smoke would waft into there in the presence of God. So it's sort of ambiguous about where it is because it's right there and it's yeah, they do say which had the golden censer. Hmm. Okay, I had not noticed that, but yes, it does say behind the second veil. It talks about that. You know, I, I cannot understand that. We've had a lot of discussions different places. I've been to worship about that, <clears throat> and. Uh, the regular priests are the ones that offer the incense. Because we know Zacharias went in, and that's when he found out he was going to have a son. And he was offering incense, and he was not the high priest. So he couldn't go beyond the veil. Oh, but wasn't he selected that year to go into the holiest of holies? Wasn't So Zechariah was in the holy of holies. But he wasn't he, the high priest, so he couldn't go in there. Well, he, they, was, he was at the altar of incense, so wherever that was. That's the same question. Oh, I guess you're saying that's the same. Okay, well, that could be the same question. I mean, my understanding, though, was that he had, it was his lot to do that. Well, the angel says, I'm in the presence of the Lord, which would kind of suggest in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. So it's kind of 
So again, that might be a little ambiguous, but if you look at a, I don't have a picture here, but if you look at a picture, I think you're right, the incense is right up to that anyway. So maybe that is just a little. Makes you wonder if it's part way in and part way out, and he offered it on the outside, and they were on one end of the Holy of Holies because it was for God. He was offering it up to God. Right, the incense is for, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I, I I go by the pictures I've seen, and I go by the description where it sounds like it's outside. But then here, you're right. It's he's a Hebrew. He's probably going to know better than me where it was. So I, I would give him that benefit. Plus, he lived back in those times. <laughs> Maybe they moved it or something. Yes. I think um, in verse five, the reason that the ark Right. At the mercy, the reason the mercy seat is mentioned like that, that's correct though, that God came, God would come down and meet them at the mercy seat at that, when they were doing that. That was the idea. The presence of God was there. And that's why it's called the mercy seat, like you're talking about atonement for, for atonement. That's where you could get his mercy. Yes. Sometimes translated propitiation or the atoning sacrifice because it's the it's the place where it happened. So sometimes that same word is used to talk about that idea. And so of course this chapter relating to those physical things to what Christ did as our right relating those things yeah back to Christ and the sacrifice that He made for us. Okay. I wonder if it's called the seat because the two angels are seated on it. Oh, I don't know. I don't know the exact reasoning for the, the name like that as far as like the, calling it the seat. Maybe they were envision, envisioning, I don't know. I, I just won't say. <laughs> so, all right. Um, question number three. What were the limitations of the earthly tabernacle and its services? If we, uh, if we look in verses 9 and 10, I mean, he says right off the bat here in verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time, right? In which gifts and sacrifices were offered, but could not really make the one who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. And then in verse 10, you read, and it was concerned only with physical things, you know, food and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances. So it was symbolic and it couldn't make one perfect in regard to the conscience. And it really just dealt with, you would say, superficial in a symbolic way of what was to come in Jesus. And then they also had a note. Um, this was imposed only 
until the time, and that's in verse 10, is imposed only until the time of Reformation. So it was not meant to be permanent. Does anybody have anything on that? All right. Okay, so question number four, of what was Christ the high priest? And they give you a couple of verses you can look at there. Um, I think 11 is probably the most straightforward. Well, he was the priest of good things to come, right? If we look at uh, verse 11, I started to skip. Um, it says he came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. And if you look over in 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he was he's the priest of the, the greater and more perfect tabernacle and the better things for us, the better covenant. Does anybody have anything on that? All right. So, number five, what sacrifice did Jesus offer? I think this is pretty straight. Himself, right? They're being a little more specific. His blood, right. His blood. Right, his blood cleanses our sins and makes us acceptable to God. Through him, we can go to God in prayer directly. Um, his own blood offered without, of course, any sin or spot, he, he offered himself. He, he took our sins. Which that kind of leads us into question number six. What does the sacrifice of Christ accomplish? Right, it ends the old law, and there's no need for the old sacrificing of animals, right? Right, and his blood is superior, and it was once for all. So his, yes, Pat? Eternal salvation. Eternal redemption. Yes, eternal redemption, eternal salvation. I, I would go with either. Um, and then... It also, did someone else have anything? Okay. Uh, it also mentions cleansing consciences. Consciences. Okay, I'm not going to be able to say that this morning. But anyway, from dead works to serve the living God. And then to put sin away once and for all. Because through him we can put sin away. We can be washed clean even though we know we have those issues. We know we're going to have sin. He was made our redeemer, our meditator, our mediator. Yes, he is our mediator. Right. Yes, he was made our mediator. So, all right. Uh, does anybody have anything else on that? 
All right. So question seven, when did the new covenant or testament come into force? Right. With Jesus' death on the cross, right. That's when the new covenant or the new testament came into force like we were uh, reading earlier for a will or a testament to actually come into force, the person must die beforehand, right? Yes, Pat? I don't know if this is true or not, but I read somewhere that this was the Passover time, okay, when, when this all happened. Um, at the same time, uh, he was crucified on the cross. That's when the uh, high priest was offering up the lamb and was killing it. No, I didn't know that. Okay. I read that somewhere. I don't know if it's Yeah, I don't know. That's it's maybe that was happening at the Passover time in general. Because they had the Passover meal before he was arrested. So Does anybody have anything else on that? Right. The veil, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, and that was to signify that we had access to God without that, I guess you would call without that earthly replica of things. Yes? There's two things significant about what you just said about the veil from the top to the bottom, because if a man went in, he couldn't reach up that high, he'd go from the bottom. And the other thing is, there was all kinds of uh, material in the bill. It wasn't just one thin piece of material. It was very, very, several layers, and it was the breadth of a hand. So it was very thick. My hand's smaller. It was the breadth of a man's hand. That's right. The so, veil was made of layers. It was really layers. thick. Yes, that is true. I'd forgotten. I wasn't thinking about that when I when I was saying that, but that's true. The veil was really a thick, layered material. It was not just one sheet of something. Yeah. Wasn't it like leather and cloth, all kinds of weird things? I can't remember. Dolphin skin? Yeah, porpoise skins and all that. I still think that's probably beavers or something, but but nonetheless, that's how some of them translate. Yeah. I'm not that strong. Maybe no. somebody is. I'm not. But, but all those layers. Imagine trying to tear a phone book. Oh, you know how thick that is and how hard that is. So. I remember seeing one of those movies or something, and they, they depict it. It looks like this pink shower curtain. And just, it's like, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, all what, what we should think about. It's very thick. Yes, it's, it's very thick. Very tall. And it was, I don't remember how high it was, but it was tall. It was taller than a person would be able to reach normally. So, Because they measured everything in cubits. And I, I understand the idea. A cubit's about a foot and a half, but I don't remember how many cubits it was. So, All right. So that's, uh, let's see. Anything else on that? That was question seven.
I know we strayed a little bit, but that's okay. So um, question number eight. So, so what is appointed for men? Which he mentions there in verse 27. To die one time. To die once and then the judgment, right? So it's appointed to us to die once. And he's making the point that Jesus died for all of us once that time. And then an easy one, question number nine, for whom will Christ appear a second time for salvation? And there's a lot of answers I guess you could give to that. But he said to those who are eagerly waiting, right, that's, that's what the Hebrew writer said. Um, Right, the dead in Christ will rise first. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if we hadn't put the word salvation on there, it would be for everybody. <laughs> because, you know, everybody's going to see him every eye. But he put the word salvation on the end of that sentence. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, because everyone is going to know when Jesus comes back. It's not going to be like a sneaky surprise. I mean, it could be a surprise. That's not what I meant. Um, it's not going to be a hidden thing. That's there we go. It's going to be obvious to everyone when Jesus comes back. It's not going to be. Yeah, they would have a fearful expectation. That would be that would be a scary thing, I imagine. So. Right, and every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So. Right. It is a fearful thing because you don't want to. That's what that's what the Lord really saves us from. Right. From falling into that judgment. So we don't we don't have to be afraid of that. So. Yes. The 23rd song. Yeah, this is this is the valley of the shadow of death. It's not even. But still, yeah, yeah, we uh, we do not need to fear evil or be afraid. God's judgment for us, as long as we are following him, is really mercy, isn't it? We don't, you know, as long as we're following him and, and working in his will and asking for forgiveness for those things that we do, So, looking at Hebrews 10 here, if we look at the, uh, the summary up here, the animal sacrifices of the law, the first covenant, are shown to be insufficient while the death of Christ fulfills the will of God and perfects those who are being sanctified. You know, we say sanctified a lot, and I don't know about you, but Ever once in a while, I have to go, okay, what does that mean again? What does that, what does that mean for me? Because that's not a word we really use. We only use it in a religious context. And it's, it's meant we're set apart. We're set apart for God, right? So we're meant to be for God, his people. That's when you read sanctified, that just is saying that we're being set apart. We're being made his. So just a reminder, if you... 
I, I have trouble with that myself, so it's not, not a word we use regularly. Uh, threefold exhortation based on what Christ has done is followed by the fifth of six warnings, and this one against despising God's grace with willful sin. And then the points to ponder there, talking about why Christ's sacrifice is superior to, superior to animal sacrifices, the importance of drawing near to God, and assembling with the brethren, the terrifying condition of Christians who persist in willful sin, because even people who are Christians or claim to be Christians can persist in willful sin. We can be rebellious. Just like, well, we read all about in the Old Testament, that's a big problem with the Israelites, right? They were, or even Saul in our study of Samuel, he, he's rebellious. He wants to do his own thing. So we can do that too. We can be that way. All right, so we'll pick up with chapter 10 next week. We're out of time for this morning. I want to thank all of you for your participation and your attention.